Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Well, good morning and welcome here to Grand Valley Church. As Rod introduced me, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Grand Valley and Vicki is our associate pastor. This morning, we're super excited that you're here with us. And if you didn't notice by the big tank we set up, this is a special Sunday. This is one of our baptism Sundays. It's a Sunday where people are sharing the declaration they've made that Christ is doing work in their lives and changing who they are. Uh, And we want to celebrate that together. So that's why we do baptism. Baptism goes back to an early church practice where uh, it began with John the Baptist, and he would, was calling people to repent. And the word repent means to turn around. It meant he was calling upon people to change from the way they were living towards God. And then when Jesus began his ministry, he began by coming to John the Baptist and being baptized. And it served as this marker point of the beginning of Christ's ministry on earth. And that's what we are remembering and reenacting when we come to baptism. But also it's this deeper declaration of saying, we don't have everything sorted out. Our lives aren't perfect. Our lives aren't going to be perfect from this point on. But it's this declaration of saying that Jesus is in me. And he's changing me. And that's what we're celebrating, that we're on that journey moving forward. So how we're going to do this is I'm going to invite each of our baptism candidates, people who are being baptized, to come up one by one. And they're going to share just a really brief... (laughs) Joseph's been teasing me this whole time that he's going to go for 20 minutes. And I told him he gets two sentences. So you're all going to help me holding him to that. Anyways... (laughs) But we're going to have a moment of them sharing why they're getting baptized, and then we're going to baptize them, and then we're going to carry on with our service. So our service is going to wrap up around noon, and a little bit after the band's back up, we're going to dismiss the kids off the kids' zone. But kids, we want you to be here and to celebrate with us for this. So Bruce, why don't you come on up? Why do I want... ...here at uh, Grand Valley, and um, you are all a testament to what Jesus was all about, and uh, I want to be a part of that. Hi, everyone. I'm Nico Miranda, and I'm choosing to get baptized today because this is what I've always wanted, and uh, yeah, I want to show everyone that I'm choosing to follow God. Hey, how's it going? My name is Joseph, and the reason why I'm getting baptized is because having God in your life is just so much better, and my journey this my next step in my journey with God, and I'm just, you know, special shout out to Jen and David, they're huge uh, supports in my uh, journey with God, and I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> my name is Jaslyn, and I want to get baptized because I love God. I am so thankful that he took away my sins, and he is with me. God is so special to me. Well, as I mentioned before, we're in a sermon series called The Problem of God, and it's based on a book by Mark Clark. He's a pastor from Vancouver, and we've been going through this series looking at some of these skeptics' challenges to Christianity. And so we've talked about things like, does God actually exist? We've talked about the science and faith. We've talked about suffering. We even talked about sex on Thanksgiving weekend. We talked about hypocrisy. Last week, we talked about exclusivity. And today, we're talking about the problem of Jesus. And so what we mean when we say the problem of Jesus is sometimes you'll face the challenge of saying, well, but Jesus never existed. Those are just stories that were made up. But, or maybe sometimes we'll say, you know, I like what he had to say, but I just I can't believe this whole resurrection thing. Like, can't, coming back from the dead, really, isn't that a bit far-fetched? 
And so those are the questions we're going to ask and we're going to dig in. But I want to invite you to pull up the YouVersion app on your phone if you have it. The YouVersion event, you can search for Grand Valley on the events tab. And there's a couple points where I'm going to ask you some questions. And I'd like to know your feedback and your response by that. And before we wrap up, we'll spend a bit of time discussing those questions together. But the whole basis of this series, the whole kind of guiding phrase we've been focusing on is this one. It's better to base our beliefs on what is true rather than what we feel or what we want to be true. And so this first question that I want to ask you is really, it's more out of my curiosity, and it's just a multiple choice one that you can click the link on to find. Which week of this series has been the most applicable or had the most impact on you? Which, which, sermon, which seri- sermon from this week made you scratch your head? And if you missed some, that's totally fine. You're always welcome to check out our podcast on our website and catch up that way. If there's a topic that I mentioned that you're like, oh, I'd really like, I missed that one. I'd like to know more about that. Our podcast is always there. So like I said, today we're talking about this question, did Jesus exist? And in 2015, the Church of England did a study where they asked people this question, do you think Jesus existed? And what they found was fascinating. 40% of the people who responded to their survey that they did said that Jesus never existed. They believed he was just a myth that was made up. But then they repeated that study amongst historians and scholars, people who have studied the biblical eras, people that have studied first century Roman Empire and the centuries following and all that. And this is what they found. Less than 1% of historians and scholars say that Jesus never existed. And this made me curious. So I looked up, who is this 1% of historians, this less than 1%, that thinks Jesus didn't exist. And what I discovered is there is this small pocket of, actually there's about 12 that I was able to discover, who only reference each other and ignore what the rest of the historical scholar community says. And this group of 12 actually had to create their own science, like historical journal to publish their articles because their articles wouldn't be accepted because they were simply dismissing the evidence. And so what is some of that non-biblical evidence? Because maybe you're thinking, well... All there is about Jesus is the Bible. You know, what what is there for non-biblical evidence that Jesus existed? Because that's the first question to ask. And then we'll talk about, well, was he who he said he was? And and did he rise from the dead? And so the first non-biblical source, we're just going to talk about two of them, even though there is more. The first one is this guy named Josephus. Now, Josephus lived from 63 to 100 AD, so just slightly after Jesus. And his role was to be a historian. His role was to write the history of Judea from, he started at about 200 BC, so about 200 years before Jesus, and he wrote the history of Judea, of what happened, and and the numerous revolts and wars that happened between the people of Judea and the Roman Empire. And this is what he said in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, book 18, chapter 3, and I'm going to read this quote. It's a little long, but bear with me. He says this, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And he goes on, he says, this is the next sentence. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. They didn't give up. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And this tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has to this day not disappeared. Now, Josephus is not a Christian. 
In fact, Josephus would have more to gain to strengthen the case of the Jewish people living in Judea if he actually left out Jesus from his history. But he actually mentions Jesus in one other place uh, in his book as he's writing the history of Judea. And he also talks about John the Baptist too in a way that exactly lines up with scripture. And so here's someone who has no skin in the game. He has no self-declared intent to say Jesus existed but other than his integrity as a historian says, well, I have to include this because this was important. And what's fascinating, and we're going to come back to this line, he says at the end, the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has to this day not disappeared. That's going to become important a little later. The second guy after Josephus was a guy named Tacitus. And Tacitus was a Roman, a Roman senator and historian. And so he lived around the same era, 56 to 120 AD. And he wrote the history of Rome and is one of kind of the foremost, when we talk about study of ancient Rome, we're talking a lot about reading what Tacitus had to say. And what happened in Rome was fascinating. In 64 AD, there was a giant fire in Rome that cleared out part of what we would call downtown Rome. And Nero was the emperor at the time. And this rumor began that Nero intentionally had someone set this blaze to clear land so he could build a bigger palace for himself. You know, that's the kind of thing that emperors do sometimes is, you know, I want that land. I'm just going to burn it all and build myself a bigger house. You know, it's a good thing that we have property laws and ownerships and all those things now. That can't happen. But to get rid of this rumor that he was the one who started the fire, he declared that it was Christians who started the fire. And this is what Tacitus writes about it. He says, to get rid of the report... Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, which was the Greek form of Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Sound familiar? He matches what Josephus is saying. He matches what the Bible says. And he goes on again here. He says, And the most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, but not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Now, what's he getting at with this? See, he's getting at the same thing that Josephus said. There was this guy named Christ who we killed, and his followers didn't disband. They stuck together. And he's writing this like you can tell the he does not have a positive view of Christians when he writes this. There is no self-serving reason to put this in. In fact, both Josephus and Tacitus would have had more to gain by leaving Jesus out of history than including him. So why did he include them? Well, they included them because it's the truth. They're historians. Their integrity is based on telling the history truthfully. So those are two non-biblical sources that kind of should make us think, yeah, you know, these guys thought Jesus lived. They knew he lived. And they talked about his followers. But then sometimes people will come up with a question and say, well, what about the Bible? Like, how do we know that the Bible is telling the truth about Jesus? Like, how really do we know this? Isn't it just a book that, that was written? And so we're going to deal with just the New Testament. We're going to deal with just the latter portion of it because we don't really have the time to dig into the whole Old Testament history and the way they recorded it and all that. But just in the New Testament, um, there's four different types of literature in the New Testament. This is what makes the Bible unique, is there's so many different kinds of literature pushed together in the Bible. So first, you end up with the Gospels, 
which are eyewitness reports and collected reports of Jesus. Then there's the book of Acts, which is this story of the early church and how the church grew after Jesus was killed on the cross. And then you have the letters, the ones written by Paul and the ones written by other apostles and church leaders that were either written to churches or groups of churches or people, and we have copies of those letters. And then there's the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which falls into this first century category called apocalyptic literature, meaning it had to deal with the future and the end times, and they don't really know what it meant. They just, you know, this is what God told John, and we wrote it down, and we still scratch our heads when we try to figure out exactly what it means today. But when we talk about these, we're talking about there was different authors that put these together. So the Gospels were written by, I'm going to take them out of order for a second, because Mark was actually the first Gospel written, and Mark was a traveling companion of Peter. And so Mark's Gospel is really the Gospel as Peter told the stories to Mark, and Mark was the one who wrote them down. Matthew and, and, and John were eyewitnesses, and John wrote his Gospel much later, than the other ones, and so he left out some of the stories and pieces that he felt the other three gospels or the other three gospels covered well, and he included pieces they left out because they just didn't have the space to write it all. And then Luke gets fascinating. The Gospel of Luke, Luke was commissioned to go and collect as many eyewitness reports and stories of Jesus as he could, and to write two books. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as this story of let's pull all these reports together and build the story of this is who Jesus was, and this is what the early church did to build a history of it. He, in his mind, was writing a history book, not a gospel when he wrote it. And what's fascinating about this is these authors of scripture, they knew if they lied about anything, it could be discredited in a heartbeat. Because we're talking about these gospels were written in an era where the eyewitnesses were still alive. So let me tell you about this for example. How many of you know of the war between Canada and the U.S. in 1992 where Canada dropped a nuke on the U.S.? What are you going to tell me? I'm a liar. Because most of you were alive in 1992 and we've never been, well, not in the last, what is it, 1812, not since then. That's a whole other story. We'll talk about that some other. Anyways, but here's the point I'm getting at. If I made that claim, every one of you can refute me. And then you're going to disbelieve anything I say. That's exactly how it was for the writers of the Gospels. They included people's names and specific places for a reason because they're actually challenging people and saying, if you don't believe me, go find Lazarus and ask him if Jesus rose him from the dead because he's there. Or go ask his kids or go ask the people in his village. Anyone could go and fact check these pieces and find out if they were true or not. So the Gospels were easy to verify Because the sheer number of eyewitnesses that were alive at the time when the Gospels were written. And furthermore, in Peter's letter to a group of churches, in 2 Peter 1, verse 20, this is the way Peter describes how they wrote. He said, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And this is where we get this piece where the Holy Spirit was walking with the authors of Scripture, guiding and illuminating and inspiring them as they wrote down what we have today as Scripture. God played a hand. So even if we take the non-biblical evidence, we take the way they had to be written to be truthful histories, and then we add on this piece that God shaped and guided them, 
That's how we come to these pieces of saying, well, that's how we can know that Scripture is true. But then someone might ask this question of saying, you know, how do we know that it's reliable? Because didn't the Bible only get put together around like 331 AD, like almost 300 years after Jesus? And that question has some truth in it. There's always little grains of truth in things like that. Because it's true, the first Bibles were compiled around 331 AD. But even before that, there was what they called them codexes at the time. And so most local churches would have a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Then they'd probably have like one or two of the Gospels. And then they'd have a copy of of as many letters as they could. And whenever Paul or one of the other apostles wrote a letter, the churches would take on the task of duplicating it to share with other churches. And the scribes took their job very seriously. In fact, there would be three scribes involved in the duplication of any letter. One that was writing, and two people looking over their shoulder the whole time, making sure they didn't make a mistake. And if they did make a mistake, they would cross it out, and all three of them would have to put their initials next to it to say that they verified the correction. And if there was more than a certain number of mistakes, they would burn the manuscript and start all over again because they were so serious about these needing to be exact. And this, is, and this happened early on in history. I mean, the Gospels were written within 30 to 50 years of Jesus' death. Eyewitnesses are still alive. And the letters were written anywhere from about 15 to about 60-ish years after Jesus' death. Some of we don't know the exact dates on, but that's our best guess that we can get to. They were written very close to when Jesus walked and lived. And we say, well, but how did it get from that to what we have now? How did we get from the Greek to here? Now, this is where this gets fascinating. I want to play numbers for a moment. When it comes to manuscript evidence, when we talk about fragments of manuscripts, what we mean is pieces of parchment that have at least a couple verses, sometimes a whole chapter. It's very rare that we find a whole letter or a whole gospel complete. But there are 25,000 New Testament manuscripts that have been discovered by archaeologists. Now, 5,800 of those are in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and 9,300 in other languages that all get compiled and added together. And there's this whole discipline called textual criticism where they compare and they build these together, and that's where we get our New Testament from. Now, here's what I want to share with you, and I'm, I'm kind of jumping to the end of this story. If you were, you know, when I did this in, in school, it was a lot longer, but No Christian doctrine or theology is based on a disputed reading of manuscript fragments. In fact, there's two passages that they're not sure about, and your Bibles actually say clearly in them, the earliest manuscripts don't include this story. But those stories, so for example, Jesus and the adulterous woman, are included because there is so much evidence that it was the author themselves who said, wait a second, I forgot this story, I need to put it in. But our Bibles clearly state these two passages were not in the earliest ones. They were added by the author later. And most of the differences that get discussed and debated by scholars and people with PhDs and all that, the differences are because of Greek grammar rules. Greek is a dead language, and the grammar is horribly convoluted. I mean, we think learning English is hard. Learning ancient Greek is crazy. But the differences that come down to, none of them affect the meaning. So how does the Bible stack up against other ancient documents? I'm going to go through this quickly. Homer's Iliad. There are only 643 manuscript fragments, and the oldest one we have is 500 years after Homer's death. So the New Testament is the oldest document we have the most support for, 25,000. Second place, 643. That's a big gap. 
And then uh, Sophocles plays. Uh, he was a, a Greek play, playwright from about the 3rd century BC. We have 193 fragments of his works. And the oldest one is dated 1,400 years after his death. When we look at that comparison, there's, those are second and third place for the most reliable ancient documents. And they aren't even on the same playing field as Scripture. The, the histority of the Bible is robust and strong. I don't know how to put it any more plainly than that. And then lastly, even if it's not that, there's other historical sources. All of human history has been profoundly shaped by the effect that Jesus Christ and Christians had on first century civilization. All of it was shaped by this. So why did Christianity grow and spread when every other self-proclaimed Messiah of the first century failed? See, when Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders killed Jesus, it was just another, you know, another Friday to them. Because in the time period before Jesus and after Jesus, there was somewhere in the ballpark of 200 to 300 false messiahs of people who claimed, I'm the son of God, and you need to follow me, and I'm the promised redeemer that the Old Testament talks about. And every time they would build a group of followers, they would go and they would fight against Rome and try and declare their freedom and their independence. And guess what? When you fight Rome, you lose. Every one of them was killed, and their followers scattered. And so when they killed Jesus, that's what they expected to happen. We hung him on a cross, he's dead, end of story, next week someone new will pop up. That was the, what Pilate was expecting to happen. But there's something different. Why did Christianity grow? It grew because of who Jesus is. Now, some people will say that Jesus never outright said, I am the Son of God, and that's true. He never outright said it in those words because to a monotheistic religion like, like Judaism, to do so was to sign your own death. And so Jesus used thinly veiled statements time and time again to teach slowly. And one of these times, John 8, Jesus was challenged about saying that he was greater and existed before Abraham. And he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And we capitalize that in Scripture, that I am, because he's actually using a Hebrew word there, not a Greek word. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament when, Jesus, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said that his name was, tell the people, my name is I am. And then Jesus, seven times more, he uses this phrase, I am, to declare who he is in relationship to God. And at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to stone him, to kill him, not smoke something. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. See, Jesus made these claims, and later on, on his last night with his disciples, he laid it out plainly for them finally because his time had come. But what was different about Jesus? What's different about Jesus is that he rose from the dead. What difference does the resurrection make? And in fact, there's objections against the, the resurrection. And we're going to talk about those, and I know I'm pushing close to 12, so I'm going to run through this super fast. I'm sorry. When we talk about the resurrection, did we know the resurrection existed? There's different objections to it. The first one, saying Jesus didn't die. You know, he just fell into a coma and lived in hiding afterwards. And in fact, that's what Islam says about Christianity, that Jesus just fell into a coma and that he woke up. He somehow rolled away the stone after being beaten, whipped, flogged, blood loss, hung on a cross till he suffocated, and then had a spear shoved through his side. See, the Romans knew how to kill people. Like... Let's be honest, in uh, 72 BC, 
there was a slave revolt. Um, Spartacus, some of you know that name. You know, I am Spartacus. You know that whole movie that's based off it. Spartacus led a slave revolt, had 6,000 followers that were fighting Rome when they were captured. Rome crucified 6,000 people in one day. Like, Rome knew what they were doing when it came to crucifixion. There is no chance, even the blood loss alone, there's no way you could wrap someone head to cloth, head to toe in tightly wound burial cloth, put them in a cave, and expect them to wake up, break out of that, push away a stone, overpower two Roman centurions, and then live in hiding. I mean, it's just, there's no way that Jesus was just in a coma. He died. The second objection was that the disciples stole Jesus' body from the tomb. But then they're living their lives based on a lie. And I'm going to quote from uh, Chuck Colson. He was a former special counsel to Richard Nixon leading up to the Watergate scandal of 1972. And he said this, I know the resurrection's a fact and Watergate proved it. How? Because 12 men, the disciples, testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. How could the disciples go on with their faith if it was based on a lie? It couldn't. There's no chance they would have stolen the body. And the third objection, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. They went to an empty tomb and said, hey, he's not here. Wonderful. Well, if that were true, what would the Rome and the Jewish leaders done that very day? Oh, here's the right tomb. Roll the stone. There's the body. You're liars. Rome could have shut that down in that very day, and it would have been done. See, when it comes to the resurrection, the resurrection changes something. We'll talk about that in a second, but here's the second question. What does it change in your life that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave? And I'm We'll see if we get to the conversation time. Maybe we'll do something different over Facebook Live or something. But here's the question when it comes to the resurrection. Christianity grew from a handful of people after Jesus' death to one-third of the Roman Empire by A.D. 300. And that was before they were recognized by Rome. How? How does a group of 120 people at the start of Acts become a third of the Roman Empire in 300 years while being persecuted, by being killed, by being outlawed and banned because they would not say that Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. How? See, here's how. The, the early church was fundamentally shaped by the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the only explanation. Their faith was built on a risen Savior who is alive and who is embodying in them and who is shaping them. That's what the early church was based on. And in fact, I would argue that our faith is not actually based on the Bible. Our faith, the foundation of our faith is securely on an event, on Jesus' death, but more importantly, his resurrection. Because that is the moment that changes everything. That is the moment that changes that Christianity doesn't just disappear the way that Josephus and Tacitus expected it to. Christianity didn't fall and disappear. It flourished under intense persecution, under intense opposition. How? Well, this is how. Philippians 2, 1-4. Paul writes this, Is there any encouragement 
from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Aren't your hearts tender and compassionate? The answer to all those is yes. That's what it means to follow Christ. He's then, Paul says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. This is what sets Christianity apart. This is what makes it so different, is love for one another and working together with one purpose and one mind, having a mission that God gave to them to move forward. And Paul goes on, he says, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your, only your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Living this out is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. Because even during times of famine, Roman historians said even those Christians don't go hungry. Why? Because they radically loved one another. They met each other's needs. They walked together. They worked through things together. You know, the church couldn't have buildings or bank accounts or anything like that. And so churches existed and whoever had the largest home in the community said, come here and, you know, this is where church will be. This radical love for one another and the freedom found in following Jesus is what fueled the church's growth. And it's all based on the resurrection. And then Paul goes on, he says this, Though he was God, referring to Jesus, he did not think that equality with God was something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience with God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This is Jesus. This is who we are called, who we pattern our lives off of. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave to him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our faith. This is our faith summarized. This is our faith concrete. And it is all based on this, that Jesus came, that he humbled himself, he died for our sins to make a way for us to know God, and he was raised to the place of honor. He rose from the dead. And then it leads to this mission that every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what the early church lived. This is how the church went from 120 to a third of the Roman Empire when Constantine, who had a supernatural encounter with Jesus, but at the same time was under intense political pressure, of seeing his empire become Christian. In 313 AD, Constantine legalized Christianity and said, you're now a protected faith. You don't have to worry about persecution, even though it still happened. But officially from Rome, they were protected. But the church was still driven by this mission. How does the resurrection shape our lives? How does it make us live and love one another? How does it shape the world? And ultimately, when we look at Christianity, when we look at who Jesus is and what he called us to, following Jesus is about looking forward to the future that God holds for us and for the world. That is what God is calling us to. That is why we are a church. That's why we're here today. That's why we walk through a sermon series like this where we say we can take the toughest questions that the world can lobby at Christianity and to every single one, our faith stands. Because our faith is based not on documents, but our faith is based on the risen 
Lord Jesus Christ. When someone comes and predicts their death and predicts they'll rise again and then pulls it off, Jesus was one of three things. He's either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Think of it. He's either a lunatic that just had crazy ideas, but they all came true. And all his promises and everything he did fulfilled all these prophecies written thousands of years earlier. Or he's a liar and he knew he wasn't the son of God, but he said he was. But still, how do we account for the fact that he accomplished so much that the accounts of Scripture are true? How do we account for his followers not disappearing and disbanding? So he's a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. Or he truly is the son of God who came to make a path open for us to walk into a relationship with God. Every one of us has to come to that question. Larry King was asked, if you could interview anyone from history and ask them one question, what would you do? And in a heartbeat, Larry King said, I'd interview Jesus Christ. And I'd ask him, were you really born of a virgin? And he said, because the answer to that changes everything. The answer to that means that Larry King recognized I'd have to change my whole life because if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then our only response is to shape our lives around that. That's what we celebrate in baptism. These four people made that choice and made that declaration. And maybe you're at the point where you're sitting on the fence, and I apologize that we're not going to get to the conversation today, but we're going to do some things through Facebook Live this week and maybe have an opportunity to share this conversation. Uh, Just search for Grand Valley Church on Facebook and you'll get notifications if you like our page of when we go live and we'll have a conversation that way later. But when we come to this third question that I wanted to ask, if you're still on the fence about entrusting your life to Jesus, why? What questions do you have? See, our church, I deeply believe, and I'm so glad that we live this out, is a place where we want to ask these hard questions. Where if you're wrestling with faith, we're not going to shy away and say, oh, don't ask that. Oh, we don't talk about that here. There is no off-limits topic. We want to dig in deep because we know that Christianity, that following Jesus holds up to everything. So if you're at that place where maybe you've been sitting on the fence and you're saying it's time to take that step of faith, it's simple. All you have to do is take the time to pray and make that declaration and say to God, You are who you said you are. You are who you said you are. You love me. You took away my sin. And I'm grateful for that. It's all it takes. But Jesus wants us to walk with him. Jesus wants us to be part of this mission of how do we share with the world his love and the freedom that we've found. So I'm just going to close with a prayer. God, Thank you so much that you came. Thank you that you saw fit to make a way open for us to be in a deep relationship with you. And God, for those of us here who are on the fence or maybe just need more time, would you give us the courage to ask the questions that we're wrestling with? Would you give us the desire to hunger and thirst for truth, knowing that the truth leads to you? And God, if we're at that moment Would you just help us say in our hearts and our minds that, Lord, we entrust our lives to you. We know that you died for us and you rose for us and that you love us and want us to be in a relationship with you. 
Help us to make that declaration for ourselves, to take that step forward in faith. And Lord, would you guide us and lead us in the life that you have for us, to love one another deeply, to shape and impact the world, and to live out this mission to share your love with everyone whom you love. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, next week, we're talking about small groups, and I really want to invite you to come back next week. Check us out on Facebook Live. We'll do some conversation stuff through the week that way. And next week, we're talking about small groups. Small groups are so important and such an important way to fuel your spiritual growth. So thanks for being here, folks. Have a great week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.